Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. In our previous programme, we heard from Derek Mitchelson, former Director of National Digital and Chief Information Security Officer at NHS Scotland on the problems recruiting and retaining skilled cybersecurity staff. Education, diversity and making the industry an attractive place to work all play their part, both in the public and private sector, he said. In the second part of our series on the cyber skills crisis, we take a deeper look at the challenges around recruiting entry-level staff and the knock-on effect that has on finding mid-tier and experienced hires. Tia Hopkins is field CTO and chief cyber risk strategist at eCentire, a firm that specializes in managed detection and response. In addition, Hopkins teaches cybersecurity, is working on her PhD, and is CEO of EmpowerHer Cybersecurity, which mentors women of color in the cybersecurity world. How then do we encourage more people to join the cybersecurity industry and firms to invest in their training? Firstly, I asked her to describe some of the work she does around diversity in the industry. Toward the end of 2020, uh, I started a nonprofit uh, in Power Cybersecurity, and the goal of that was to uh, get more women of color interested in and confident in, more importantly, uh, their ability to have a successful cybersecurity career. Because, I mean, it, it, at some point it does come down to having the hard skills and the training and everything, but if you don't believe in yourself and your abilities, then it's hard to go out and get anyone else to believe that you'll be able to do what they need you to do in their organization, especially as an entry-level uh, individual. Uh, in addition to that, um, I teach in, in, as part of a master's in cybersecurity program. Um, and I actually just uh, finished co-authoring a book called Hack the Cybersecurity Interview, which is uh, a description of a lot of uh, different cybersecurity roles and what they are and how to prepare for them and typical interview questions uh, that you can expect. So entry-level talent, if we focus in on that for, for the moment, um, how big an issue, how big a problem do you think organizations are facing with finding people at that entry level? And what is the definition of entry level that we're looking at here? Are we looking at college leavers, uh, university graduates? I think it's interesting that you asked how, how we're looking at entry level, because I see entry level as someone as specific to cybersecurity, to be clear, um, as someone that has no background in, in technology uh, at all, like no hands-on practical experience in technology. I, in my opinion, it's not specific to cybersecurity. So I actually have conversations all the time where someone is, say, a software developer or a systems administrator, network administrator. I tell them, you're not really entry level to cybersecurity because you have the foundation laid. You just need to understand the applicability of cybersecurity on top of that. Um, but at the end of the day, it does come down to the mentality of the individual. And, and often I find, given the complexity and confusing nature and just the broad, you know, there's so many domains within cybersecurity, um, I think the thought is if you've never held a security or cybersecurity specific role, then you are new um, to the space. But to, to answer your question around what the challenge is, I think part of it is a lot of leaders are struggling to figure out the appropriate level of responsibility to give to an entry-level resource. Like, how can I carve up my security program and the responsibilities therein 
in a way that opens me up to to bring in more entry level talent because it's high stakes. You know, if if I'm a CISO, I have to make the right decisions and you know, my job is on the line if, if something happens to my organization. So do I have time to restructure my program? Can I afford to take a risk on on someone uh, that doesn't have any experience? And, and how do I meet in the middle trying to solve a very difficult problem um, that has so much pressure behind it? So I, I don't think it's a, an issue of individuals not entering the industry and being interested in trying to prepare for these roles. I think one, there's a lack of clarity on, on what these individuals need to focus on. What do they need to demonstrate to drive a sense of confidence in, in hiring managers? And then on the, the organizational side of things, I do think uh, expectations, one, need to be defined a bit better so they can be articulated a bit better. And that way, entry-level candidates can know how to be better qualified and hiring managers can better identify who the more qualified entry-level candidates are. So it's providing a better match between the vacancies and the applicants. Absolutely. Because what I see on one side is organizations saying, we have this huge cybersecurity skills gap, we can't find talent. But I talk almost every day to someone that has gotten certifications and gotten a degree and has been, you know, um, working in a lab environment at home and just can't land a role. And that's interesting because we hear constantly from employers, from governments, from the security professional bodies about this skills gap. So from where you're sitting, and you're in New York at the moment, where you're sitting, and how big is that gap? And is it actually a gap as in a genuine shortage? Or is it that mismatch that you've touched on just now? Maybe the right people are not applying for the right roles and employers potentially are looking for the wrong things. Yeah, I, I do think it's a bit of both, you know, because the, the reality is you can't fill every role out there with entry level talent. You know, you do need senior managers, senior analysts, program managers and things of that nature. But I do think as large as we're saying the gap is, you know, millions of, of jobs available and things like that. I don't think they all have to be because some of those roles can be filled by by more entry-level talent. And it plays into retention as well, right? If, if a leader is too afraid to carve off, you know, low-level, low-risk responsibilities and hand them off to someone that's entry-level and then skill them up and move them through their program and, and have more of a, like a pipeline mentality, then you also risk losing your mid to senior-level talent that want to be challenged and get bored of doing the same things um, every day. So then you have that, that's where you have the whole, well, we have a cybersecurity skills gap, so we can't hire anybody. And when we get someone, we're having trouble keeping them. I think it all boils down to structuring the program appropriately and ensuring that the right uh, responsibilities are aligned to the right skill level. And in fact, you've highlighted that there is a problem, potentially a growing problem, even with hiring at the mid-tier. So is that because there's been a gap in recruitment or is it due to expansion of the industry? There are just more of those more responsible and those more experience required type vacancies out there. Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. You know, to your point around expansion in the industry, we would have needed to have started building some sort of funnel many years ago with this entry level talent. And, and we didn't do a great job of that. So now the industry has expanded. We wouldn't have had enough talent, I think, even if it hadn't. Um, and now we're in a situation where we're trying to address a growing need for this mid to senior level talent. But we also have this gap on the other end because we don't have enough of them, but there's not enough people coming in behind them, you know, to eventually get up to that mid to senior level. So we have more of a pool to, I guess you could say, source from. And the industry has expanded in terms of the number of cybersecurity roles out there during the 
pandemic because as organizations have become so much more reliant on online processes, they've realized that they need to secure those processes. They become more data driven. They need to secure that data. So it's not just the cybersecurity vendors and the cybersecurity researchers. It's much broader than that. It's actually all the businesses that are doing more online and therefore need more cybersecurity talent, uh, if we look at it that way. And that's certainly the, the mid to long term trend, I think. Would that resonate with your experience? Absolutely. I agree with you. There's, you know, organizations that had to move their data to the cloud, you know, as a result of the pandemic, and maybe they weren't necessarily ready to do that. Um, so there is, you know, more activity occurring online, as you mentioned, and and also there's a bit more pressure coming from the board level in terms of, you know, wanting to ask questions around the overall effectiveness of cybersecurity programs and are we investing in the right things? Are we doing this the right way? Are we as protected as we could be? Because breaches, you know, are becoming very public and they're becoming frequent. And um, I, I think business leaders have made a much needed shift. I mean, I think we would have liked it to happen a number of years ago, but now I think not across the board, but for the most part, what I see is that security is now seen as an investment instead of a cost center to the business and, and leaders want to make sure the, the investments are being leveraged appropriately. In addition to yes, you know, if you're going to maintain a competitive edge, that means you have to innovate and innovation typically means more advanced technologies, um, moving things to the cloud so that you could be more flexible, scalable, resilient, things of that nature. And yeah, with that comes the need to manage and secure all of that additional data. Certainly that move towards investment or seeing security as investments is a positive thing. But investing in individuals and investing in training, again, there is discussion about whether we invest as an industry, do we invest enough in training? And this question of you know, should you invest in training? Because if you train people up, they then move somewhere else. Our previous guest in this series worked in the health service in Scotland, and that was certainly an issue in the public sector because salaries generally are lower. People gain experience and then move on to a higher paid position uh, in the commercial world. Is that, again, something that causes a problem? How much of a practical problem is that? Are employers actually saying, no, I won't invest in this individual because if I invest in them, I'll lose them? For me, I think where the hair splits there is is the definition of investment. I think the investment in the individual goes beyond just giving them a training course. Investment in the individual is understanding what their career trajectory looks like to them. What are they passionate about? What are they interested in? Are there shadowing opportunities for them to understand other areas of the business? And are they interested in that? I think that in a situation where someone you know, gets training and then kind of jump ship because they get a different opportunity because they have this new skill. Uh, for me, the reality is potentially that they were not very attached to, to the leader or the organization uh, in the first place, uh, because I think especially high performers where they understand what their contribution is and that they have a part um, and especially for results driven individuals, investing in, in that individual is ensuring, yes, sure, that they have the skills they need to do the job, but also that they're motivated, that they're driven, that they're passionate about the work uh, that they're doing. Because I find the, the, the better an individual feels about what they're doing every day, the more they'll want to do that thing. So, I mean, and then there are some individuals out there that are just coin operated, not to take away from that. So that is always uh, a bit of a risk. But the other side of that is not getting your employees what they need so they can perform as best as possible with, within your team. And then your team suffers as a whole because there's underperformance across the board and insecurity. 
that's dangerous. So I do think leaders need to take the mentality of seeing training as necessary, whether it's a necessary evil is, is up for debate, but it is, it is necessary, but also taking a look at, okay, in addition to this, what can I do to invest in this employee and ensure that they want to continue to be a, a part of my team? Because the reality is the job market is so competitive. No one really has to stay anywhere anymore. You know, when you think about the availability of, of remote work now, that makes it even more competitive. So leaders, do have a lot more work to do, you know, to raise, I would almost say, you know, raise um, the their brand as an organization and, and as a team that will draw individuals to, to not only want to join, but also want to stay. So what actions would you recommend that organizations take? I, I do think the leaders of organizations need to be a bit more, I would say, focused on the individual, like I mentioned. I mean, obviously, I mentioned structuring your program in a way that allows you to carve out the boring, repetitive, mundane task from your mid to senior level talent so that they stay motivated, but then opens up an opportunity for you to bring in entry level talent, get them comfortable with the organization, get them comfortable with the way your particular organization views security, because I think we know that's going to vary from organization to organization, but also to my point around investing in the individual understand the uh, the individual more at a personal level leverage that mid to senior level resource uh, to mentor them because that'll be motivating for that mid to senior level resource as well. Give them projects so that they can learn more, challenge them. Um, and, and I think that is a total investment in an individual beyond just here's some training, don't leave or sign this document because if you leave before a year is up, then you're going to have to pay us back. That makes an individual just feel like a, a number, not part of your program, not part of your team, not fighting a good fight uh, with you as a leader uh, in your organization. So um, to sum that up, structuring the team a bit more efficiently to open it up for entry-level talent, and then investing in team members at the personal level beyond just uh, training and education. So how powerful is mentoring within that? And that's something that you do quite a lot of. I think mentoring is incredibly powerful. And for me, it, it just comes back to confidence. I think there are a lot of talented individuals trying to get into cybersecurity, already in cybersecurity, but just starting out in their career. And they really just need someone that's been there, done that, to either say, yeah, you're thinking about that the right way, you're really good at this, or you're on the right path, but here's how I would approach that a little differently based on my experience, right? So it's validation. Uh, it shows that there is a path and it also humanizes people a bit. One thing that concerns me about, you know, my profile specifically, uh, you know, say on LinkedIn and why I mentor so much is because LinkedIn is a place where you post and talk about all the great things you've done. And I try to do this from time to time, but it's rare that we post about where we made mistakes and how we overcame struggles and the, the the jobs that we didn't get and the opportunities that we missed out on. And I think mentorship helps with that too. It helps individuals in this really, really daunting industry understand that it's it's not easy and it's it's not just you that it's not easy for, you know, and, and just stick with it. And here are some skills that you have that I think are going to set you apart. And really just um, that that encouragement, I think, goes a long way. It does. And I think also it helps to bring out people's abilities where they may not necessarily be evidenced by a qualification. And this industry loves its qualifications. It loves its certifications. You know, that, that's not a bad thing. And it is a requirement 
and we know there's been lots of discussion around the need to professionalize parts of the industry. Penetration testing is one area where, or ethical hacking, one area where that's developed quite a lot in recent years and out of necessity. But at the same time, there are other ways of finding out that somebody is suitable to do a role. And I think that's, again, something that uh, you've looked at before, this question of hiring for aptitude. Yes, I'm, I am a big proponent of hiring for aptitude instead of just what's on the resume or CV, because I am not discounting the importance of certifications. They give give us a sense of at least someone has taken the time to go through uh, this information and, and they were able to to pass a test that says they understand it. But where the gap can sometimes come in is the applicability of that knowledge. And so you could have someone that's very smart that consumes the information and that can pass an exam or can get through a degree program. And then you put them in a situation and they have difficulty leveraging everything they've learned to solve a problem. So you can put on your CV that you're a problem solver, right? But it takes some sort of demonstration uh, of capability for for a hiring manager to know that. And so I ask questions to to really get an understanding of how the individual is wired. You know, for me the CV gets you in the door. It tells me that you you check all the boxes that I need checked in order to know that we're at a level that I could potentially bring you onto my team. But beyond that, I want to know what you do in your free time. I want to know what you're passionate about. I want to know how you handle a situation where you don't exactly know what to do. How do you get through that? What What do you try? Um, because those are all the things that, that demonstrate aptitude. It, it demonstrates character. A lot of the things that you can't put on, on a resume or, or a CV. And, and I like to joke about myself, you know, because the things that don't show up on my resume often tied to the way I grew up, you know, coming from humble beginnings, I was often put in situations where I had to figure out how to get something that I needed or get to a place that I needed to go without really having much of, of what I needed to get me there. And for me, that translates into my career um, as being creative um, and a problem solver and a critical thinker. We have to get this thing done. We don't have everything we need to do it. What are we going to do? And it is not foreign for me. It's not scary for me, right? Because it's 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 a place that I'm uh, good or bad, <laughs> comfortable being in. But those are things that you just can't have in a resume that just don't show up the same way. So I do think the conversations need to go beyond the hard technical skills and we need to dig more into how a person is wired, what motivates them, what moves them and, and how they think. And I think a lot of leaders would be surprised what they what they turn up with and the individuals that they'd be willing to put on their team versus not when you're just looking at technical skills and certifications. But surely that is harder for a hiring manager to do. Absolutely. I, it, by no, no stretch of the imagination is it easy because it, it's it's almost like in technology in general, and not just in cybersecurity, we feel like those having those technical skills or doing the things that say, okay, you have the, the technical skills that I need for you to have in order to do this job, that that's enough. But if someone say, like certifications, educations, those, those things are not cheap. So maybe someone has gotten a book and they read a book and they were able to get some cheap computer parts or network equipment and set up a lab at home. And they're very skilled at doing the things that we need them to do, but they don't have any letters behind their name to say that they've done them. And then on the flip side of that, you have someone that has the letters behind their name, but literally all they've done 
is pass the exam. So the advice that I give to my mentees is if you see a requirement that says one to three years of experience, don't assume that it means one to three years of professional experience, right? Don't, don't imply that. Don't put that pressure on yourself because the reality is if you've been in, whether it's in a lab environment or you're helping people with their own cybersecurity needs and your free time, that's experience and it's experience that you can speak to and leverage those stories, leverage those things that you've done um, to demonstrate or articulate to a hiring manager that you can do the things that they need. I think storytelling is is almost more important. Like, what have you done? What do you know? What can you do um, versus just listing out a bunch of certifications? So where should we be looking to broaden the talent pool or the potential talent pool? I think we should be looking all over the place. I mean, back back to the point of diversity, I, I think it stretches beyond, you know, gender, it stretches beyond ethnicity. I think it, it goes into educational background. You know, I find that I am able to do my job incredibly well. One, yes, because I, I, I got uh, cybersecurity education. I've been in the industry for a while, but also I'm an educator. So I find that educators are really skilled at understanding requirements, gathering requirements, but but also articulating solutions back to uh, prospective buyers or in, in consultative situations, consulting organizations. So I think we have to just kind of put on the our diversity thinking caps and think of all the areas we can look. So, you know, because I could give the standard answer, well, you know, we should be reaching out to, to the universities and, and we need to start with individuals when they're young and in high school and middle school and things like that. And that's all true because younger um, boys and girls need to be aware of cybersecurity as a potential career opportunity but we're in a situation, right, where we don't have time to wait for them to get through school and figure out what they want to do with life and things like that. So we have a lot of individuals today, you know, that could fill cybersecurity roles if we were able to do a better job with taking a look at transferable skills and where someone might be great. You know, someone that's, a, I don't know, a, a biomedical engineer could turn out to be an incredible uh, threat intelligence researcher. And on the surface, you wouldn't think of that, but think of the way someone just in the medical field in general has to do research in, under, in order to come up with solutions. So I think we could be a bit more creative um, down the path of diversity from educational background, from work background, work history. Um, I, I just, I think that the pool of talent for cybersecurity is limitless. We just have to be willing to put in the work. We're looking for people with a particular way of thinking. I, I do think there's a requirement there. Um, because this is not an industry that you can get into without knowing that things change every day. Things change in this industry by the minute. So it's not like you get the certification, you get the degree and you're done. It's ever changing. It keeps you on your toes and you have to love it from my perspective, or it could become incredibly, incredibly exhausting. So yes, I would say someone that is passionate um, about uh, protecting data, protecting personal security, protecting organizational security, national security, um, is a critical thinker, problem solver, um, can can seek patterns, you know, and that's at the technical level on the, uh, let, let's say we're talking about governance, risk, and compliance, right? Being able to take in a lot of information and find trends and have conversations that get down to prioritize and what's important to an organization to reduce risk and, and things like that. So, I would say there's not one train of thought. It, it does lean into the role specifically a bit. Um, but I think if you're not passionate about this work and you're not someone that is a, a student of like a, 
what do you call it? a lifelong learner? That's the term I was looking for. I, I think you might find the industry a bit challenging. You have to have a passion for knowledge, certainly, and that ability to keep refreshing your skills. Absolutely. But if we look then at the question of diversity and inclusion, and we've done some programs on this in the past, we have an initiative in the UK called Respect and Security, which has been uh, quite significant in highlighting some of the issues. Part of the problem with retention is that the industry isn't always a great place to work and it is a high-stressed environment and sometimes the work is actually just very, very difficult. What have you seen in that area and what do you think could change to make it a more inclusive place, a more welcoming place and when people have these skills and qualifications and these skills and qualifications are highly sought after in other industries too, that they actually want to make a career in this line of work? Yeah, that's a great question because just because I'm passionate about something doesn't mean I'm going to want to do it if it's you know if it's stressing me out or I can't find a, a decent work-life balance. And you know the reality is some people need that more than others. Um, some some people enjoy working 12, 14, 15 hour days, and and some people need their eight hour day or their nine hour day if if it's required, but they need to be able to get on to their lives. So I think on the front end of that is being open and transparent about the baseline expectations of a specific role and then what could happen in the role. You know, don't tell a SOC analyst that they're going to have an eight-hour shift when you know the reality is typically it ends up being a nine to 10-hour shift or if the stuff hits the fan, it could end up being a 12 to 14-hour day. You know, be honest about those things and allow individuals to make informed decisions. That's up front. And then I think once individuals are in the organization, right, we, we still have the pressure of we want to retain talent because if we lose talent, we're starting over. It's very expensive to start over. It's hard to find them and things of that nature. So doing our best as leaders to provide our teams with a work-life balance, but also acknowledging those moments where we can't and, and, and that we wish we could. I think that openness goes a long way. You know, I am much more willing to, to put in extra hours for a leader that shows me they, they have respect and concern for my work-life balance. And, you know, if you could just hang in there, I, I really appreciate it versus the leader that says, well, it's your job. It is what it is because that puts me in a place of, well, you know, I don't really have to, I don't really have to take that. And so I don't want to, you know, come off as all kumbaya and say, yeah, we just have to give everyone work-life balance and we just got to let people leave when they're ready to go and everybody gets to work from home or remote or hybrid. You know, the reality is all of us, no matter what industry we're in, at the end of the day, we when we do our job, it has to align to the needs of the business, right? And anyone that's taken a certification exam at the leadership level in cybersecurity, everything we do aligns to the goals and objectives of the, of the business. So I want to say all those things, but also within as much as realistic for the organization, but also in communication with those individuals that are part of the team so that when things don't look the way that we would like them to as leaders, they understand that this is not what, this is not the way we would have it. It's just something that we need to get through. And I really appreciate you for being here. I think that appreciation goes a long way as well. There is certainly nothing to be gained by giving people false expectations. So who then should take the lead? Because we've talked about the role of employers, we've talked about the role of educators, educators, the role of governments. There are a lot of people potentially with a stake in this. So is this something that should be led by governments? Is it something that should be led by the education sector? Or do you think in your experience, it should come from industry? 
That is a, that's a tough one for me because my knee jerk reaction is it should come from industry because we're trying to meet the needs of these organizations that are trying to secure their environments. However, education is, is rooted in research and trends and a much larger data pool than the one organization that, you know, has to secure data in this specific type of infrastructure at these specific locations with this specific number of users. So I do think it needs to be a combination. I can say that where it can't start is with the talent trying to enter into the industry or the talent that's already in industry trying to survive because all of these individuals are just trying to meet defined objectives. So I think as an industry, in combination with government, in combination with educational institutions, we need to align on what good looks like, which is a huge challenge for the industry, um, and then come together on how to better set expectations from an education perspective, from a certification perspective, from a job requirements and expectations perspective um, for this talent entering in and, and already in industry. So lastly, are you an optimist? I am a realist. Tia Hopkins there on some of the ways that firms can encourage the right talent to join and to stay in the cybersecurity world by recruiting outside the CV and how businesses can truly invest in their talent and in diversity. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights, but our investigation into the cyber skills shortage will continue with part three of the series, which will be out on August the 3rd. We hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>